That's a Yame Shinsha, which is fresh harvest from my favorite place in Japan, my favorite place, my favorite tea in the world, Yame Fukuoka. You go to Hakata Station. That's where you get the best stuff. It's the highest umami in the world. There's a scale of, uh, there's a flavor profile. And it doesn't get any better than that. There's been a shift over the last maybe 30 years, really increasingly in the last 10, 15, where Uji was like, like if you talk to more mainstream tea people, if you talk to anyone who has a matcha brand, they will name check Uji. They have no idea that Fukuoka exists. But the real heads, the people who really know what they're talking about, know that Yame really like it's it's a different so there's there's a bitterness and, and bitter can be beautiful. Bitter is not just bad. But there's a bitterness to the Uji flavor that has been the standard forever. But Yame came in and, and went on the other side of it, which is sweet. The u- the umami flavor. And, you know, a little bit, it's like the new kid on the block offering the freshness, offering the new thing. And Uji's, like you got Suen, which is still, I have Suen tea Aoi, which is just marvelous. But, and that's the oldest. That's, uh, I think, the the guy who's there now, who I had the pleasure of of drinking with. He, uh, I think he's 17th generation, something crazy like that, or like 24th. It's it's something crazy. Um, But yeah, but Yame, I mean... Yeah, just like I drink both and and I like Yame more. It's just there's nothing that compares to it. And that's what I'm having on what is a really, really amazing morning right now. Bianca told me it's the new moon. And I woke up at like 5.45 a.m. I go to bed early. I go to bed when the sun, uh, when the sun sets. The sun sets really late here. I'm in Correa's, Mexico. I'm right on the ocean and I watch the sunset every night and it sets not till like it doesn't get dark until 10 p.m. So I can just go to bed with the sun setting and and then like turn on a movie at 10. It's incredible. So I do that most nights and then, you know, I wake up super early. So I I wake up, I just leave everything open and and the light wakes me at, I mean, 545. It's 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 like. I don't know what do you what do you call the morning twilight but it's like you don't see the sun but you just get an aura and if I'm fresh you know if I went to bed early I wake up to that if not I sort of roll around like if I was up late or if I was writing or something then I sleep till like you know I can't really sleep past eight because by then it's like there's really sun but this morning was really nice I stayed in bed with the sun coming up. So I, I, I woke up when it was dark out, put on a film, watched the whole film while the sun was coming over the hill. So in the two hours that the film played, it went from dark to like full morning. It was a really nice experience. I haven't done it. I haven't like, I've done that for a few minutes here and there, but I haven't done the whole thing that way. And then by nine... I was in the water and a week ago 
So this apparently has never really happened. It's hap- it happens here and there, but like in tiny, in, in lesser degrees. But about a week ago, our shore was completely taken over by jellyfish, tiny jellyfish, not the kind of jellyfish that you might think of, like the big ones that that bite you. But I mean, these jellyfish do bite, I guess, but like they can't do much damage. They're tiny. They're like babies, maybe. But I'm talking like the water was just completely full of them. I, I took a paddleboard all the way out to the rocks that if you if you've seen like my Instagram the videos or whatever you know I, I don't know how far it is but you 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 can swim it but it's it's far but I I went all the way out past the rocks to see if there were any spots where I can swim and the jellyfish were completely they took up the entire thing they were everywhere so I couldn't swim for about a week. Um, I would just go in for a second, like I fell in all the way out in the water, and I got really nervous that I was going to get bitten up, but I didn't. And so uh, apparently the reason why is is the jellyfish get eaten by bigger fish. And the bigger fish, because the humans and the boats and the machines and stuff have not been messing up the water, the bigger fish are healthy and they just like have enough food, so they haven't been eating this like fresh batch of jellyfish. So these jellyfish end up going somewhere, and they come to shore. Uh, the other thing that I heard was it was the the water temperature changing. And that didn't entirely make sense. Uh, someone told me it was colder than usual. Someone told me that it was warmer than usual. I, I was I was very confused. But the, the narrative about the fish having enough food that we haven't fucked with them, that made more sense. But what I was left with was when... The jellyfish went away. The water was so warm. So it, it's and it's been since. So for the first few months that I was here, it wasn't that warm. It was, it was, it was fine. But it was like you know, it was a chill. It was like you dive in and like you're like, you know. I swim. I swim every day. I have been since March. But I get in and I kind of I do my laps and I do this square in the uh, in the in the ocean but I, it's it's like laps for me but now like i do it twice and i'm i was like chilling in the water yesterday it was, it's so nice so it's been really really beautiful the last this week and life has been good everything is i mean the few weeks before that were so stressful even from afar but not that like things should calm down but it's just at least the anxiety is kind of mellowed. People are not losing their shit constantly. I'm not losing my shit. We all have to keep, you know, working on this movement, but no one's like, we're, we're not losing our minds anymore, which is nice. That was a wild week or two weeks, whatever it was, where we were all kind of losing our minds constantly. And we had to. It was, it was for good reason, but it's stressful. And now, yeah, I've been super focused on stuff with, I mean, I don't know who, you know, who's listening, who knows about the rest of my life, but I don't really talk. I, I just so, sort of refer to it, but I have a, a film situation and it's going well. And I've been able to put some beautiful focus into it. Oh yeah, so, so like I woke up really early, watched this film with the sunrise went for my swim, did like my, did like a double set of laps. 
then I, like all my meditation sessions have been really good lately. Like I've been I've been crying or laughing a lot when I meditate. I do TM transcendental meditation. Penny Hints taught me, who's Lynch's friend and teacher, and I don't know what they would call each other, but Penny's amazing. Penny reached out to me a few weeks ago, just out of the blue, and was like, "Do you want to?" to a zoom meditation together and it was lovely and i've been more she, she, she stays on me so i've been on my two a days recently and yeah there's been a few times where because because we let thoughts come we're not trying to like empty the mind i'm doing my mantra but i'm allowing the thoughts in and i go between the mantra between breathing and thoughts and i just go you know Lynch talks about it, you know, we go deeper, we go catching the big fish is his metaphor, but I go places that the the quiet is required really to go there, and when the places are good, I get emotional, I mean, when they're bad, I get emotional, but like, recently, it's been the quiet has felt really beautiful. It's felt healing. My really good friend. So I've, I, if you listen to the boyfriend episode, I, I talk about um, how I've been sick. And I'm fine. It's more like a disruption to my life. Like I'm not like dying or anything. It's just like my life is constantly disrupted. But my friend Magda has been telling me for a while that she believes that because because basically my shit is like everything is so inconsistent like every diagnosis and hypothesis i've worked with has been proven false and that's been really challenging it's been really um freeing in some ways liberating because i can really truly embrace how little like, like I used to blame myself. I used to guilt myself. I used to think, oh, if I stuck to this discipline, if I, oh, if I didn't do that, oh, man, if my parents didn't do this, I would get angry, you know? And I'd feel, I'd feel horrible. But sort of the inconsistency liberates you of that in a way. It doesn't physically make you better, but it cleanses you you know holistically like, like, like energetically in a way but Magda thinks that I'm sick she she just thinks that once like she thinks it's all inside and it's all just energy and it's all like I just need to get things the way that I, I I just need to get things into like a comfortable place for me and I will get better and I've always made that about art where you know three years ago I, I committed to something and it's I've been figuring out exactly what that something is it was sort of like I, I, you know, like a Michelangelo metaphor of like the the sculptures inside. Like I know that it's inside, but 
but I need to chip away to reveal it. That's how it kind of felt. It was like I knew what I was going for, but I couldn't articulate it. And the following years were to be the time where I would find the curves and edges and and textures. And I have. And I don't know. I mean, my, like my skin is clearing up a lot lately. And meditating was was not doing it for me for a while but lately it's been really nice so i don't know maybe you know maybe magda's right maybe like i made the film i'm getting positive feedback the next one is moving in the direction i want creatively it's exactly where i want to be and maybe that's it I'm no longer giving my energy to things that pull me away. And when I get reflective, I it feels good. So this morning has been extremely reflective. This whole week, there's something that I wrote. I was going to post it on Instagram and then I I decided not to. Because uh, someone responded, someone who I respect, responded to something that I wrote. And I I took an important note from her. So then I wrote this sort of thread yesterday. And I realized that, no, that was actually, like, not what I needed to learn from her. But what's been happening this week that's been really challenging is everything's going really well on paper except I have all these little things that are driving me nuts day to day a music producer I work with his manager is fucking pissing me off and he's like pulling the producer sort of like away from me not away from me like but just like energetically like we're not in sync anymore and i you know and i'm my my mind is just like fuck this manager i had a i have a chef who cooks for me here cuz i'm i'm in the middle of nowhere And it's like, I'd rather give the money to the local community than, um, you know, like the fancy restaurant down the street. Um, so I have a chef who comes here and like, I, I just realized we were like overspending on certain things. And I was like, can we, you know, I wanted to make a list and go over it so that I could understand because I don't do the shopping and, and somewhere in my shitty Spanish like she thought that I was accusing her of something and it it turned into like this like horrible just like I was like waiting like like, I love this woman she's so good to me and like for what I'm paying her it's crazy you know She's, she's an amazing cook and I was like trying to resolve this thing going back and forth having having someone else here like translate because my Spanish wasn't getting across apparently I thought my Spanish was better 
but like this dumb like miscommunication was like taking up all this energy would, would turn in turn into this energetic you know major major negative energy thing for me and either there's been a few things like that little stupid things you know and what's been cool though is that i i sort of like just because i guess i have to be in a place where something is more important maybe that maybe this is like the transcendence is that because transcendent zen like would have me just balance those moments those 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 bouts of negative energy transcendentalism would have me balance that independently I wouldn't need to find a good reason. The mountain is a mountain. The mountain is no longer a mountain. The mountain is the mountain again. I would not need a good reason. I would not need a comparison. I would not need context or perspective to say, you know what? Maybe don't fight with this music manager. Maybe just respond exactly. Maybe just just do it the way that he says. Because what do I care about? I care about continuing to work on the stuff that I'm working on and I care about them finishing this thing this song that I'm trying to finish that's like 90% done and I just need them to finish it the effort of getting someone new would be tremendous and it would cost me money and it would be a huge distraction it would be a, a new learning curve I love this music producer I love working with him I don't want to burn the bridge and being right might cost me that. So do I want to be right? Or do I want the song finished? And then I could figure out my relationship with him later, once the work is done, and keep my cool head. So I came to this. The same thing with, 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 with the, the, the food. It was like, yes, I can like maybe shave off 5%, 10% of my monthly expenses on these shopping trips. But like it's creating all this negative energy. And I was just like, this is like, I have stuff to do. Like she needed to talk to me while I was like about to start recording the other day. And it was, it was, it was all of a sudden it was like, this thing is, is, is more like me saving a little bit of money on shopping is now getting in the middle of something of me, of my focus time on the film. And yo, this film is like so much more important so that's what kind of brought me there. Where like, let me just resolve all these things. Like, let me take the L. Let me just, 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 just dump all the L's on me. All the negatives, all the losses. Just I'll take them. I don't care, as long as I get to move forward. And that's how I've been acting. And that's been really nice. It's felt awesome. Like I, I would, I was losing sleep over this music manager. But when, and I haven't even responded to him, I'm just going to like cool it off for a week. But the idea, you know, once I came across that threshold of the idea, it made me, it settled me a lot. And I can work on the script. I can, I can sleep at night, you know, and that's worth gold. And I guess if I'm really growing, if I'm really In control of my universe 
if I'm really making choices, if I'm really committed to my actions, if I am more powerful today than yesterday, then I don't need the film to create that balance. That's what, that's the prize. That's what I need to focus on. Because I'm really happy with how I handled these things. Like yesterday, my cook was very, she was, she was here and she was really like cheery and happy and like no negative energy in the air. Cause I was just like, listen, I love you. You're great. I appreciate you so much. I don't, I, you know, I'm so sorry for the miscommunication. It wasn't important. I think things got confusing and I, and that was my fault because I don't speak good enough Spanish. But what's important is that I appreciate you. You do a great job. I completely trust you. That was never in question. And whatever else I was talking to you about isn't very important. And I'm ready to just move on and drop it. And I appreciate your work as it is. And it was, you know, a great day. And she made me amazing food as always. Now, this episode is about, it's a continuation of yesterday with Ash Carter. And uh, the reason I came in with this huge ramble was because my first thought was thinking about Ash makes me reflective. Because Ash is someone who's very connected to my past and my entire life, really, and include obviously my present as well. And that just got me on like, oh shit. I can't just start talking about the Upper East Side and the West Village. I got to imbue this. I got to surround this with everything I'm feeling right now. So Ash is from New York City. Both of our families have... I, I hate starting with that. It's just like, that's why we are the way we are. You know, I, I don't know. Like, for a long time, I had weirdness. I remember when I was a kid and I was like a PA on music video shoots and stuff. And I was really young. I'd be like 14 or something. And it's funny, Brian Belatech put out the Run the Jewels video last week. I used to work for Brian Belatech and also Eric Heimbold. And I spoke to Eric the other day about my, he watched my film and was giving me some advice. Amazing that, you know, 20 years later, <laughs> it's great. They're both very handsome, which is, which is cool. Like 20 years later, very, very handsome guys. Um, But I would be on those sets, and I remember eventually, at some point, there'd be a you know another PA or somebody. Usually, like another PA. Like if it was like a grip, they wouldn't give a shit. They would just be like too busy doing stuff. 
but it would be like an AD. Usually the AD was also, no, it would be like a key PA or a PA. AD is like a professional and the AD's job is also like a, like a therapist, like a psychologist of the set. But the key PA, you never know. You never know what you're going to get with a key PA. The key PA could be an AD in training, could be a UPM in training. PM, production manager. Or it can be like, uh, you know, a messy person. But I remember I'd get some, I, once they'd realize like why I was there, they'd get annoyed sometimes that like, oh, this guy knows the director or something. And that was when I was a kid. And I used to get sensitive to that stuff for a long time. That was part of, definitely, I'm not going to pretend like it hasn't been part of my sort of like removal from the world, was there was like one chapter of my life where it was like I needed to do stuff that was like better than my dad or different, you know, even if I'm in music, like I need to be known for my own stuff. And it never really was like in the front seat. It wasn't like something I was thinking about a lot. But it was, um, it would get brought up here and there. And, I, and I, would, I would always be conscious of like where I fit in with that narrative. But at this point, like I care so little. And I imagine Ash is the same. I didn't really ask him this, but... Like, I think my family's dope. I'm, I'm, I'm the first to, like, like, I'm happy to bring it up. I haven't felt any kind of, um, I think it's because, like, of the, the diversity of work I've done at this point. Like, clearly, like, no one, it's, it's kind of like when I graduated from college. Like, no one knew I graduated from college. So I didn't get any of my jobs because of that. And, like, at this point, like, no one knows who my dad is. Like, they, 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 they connected at some point. But, like, when I'm getting, like, a creative directing position, like, they don't know. They just, they, they're like, oh, this guy worked at Apple or something like that. That's more, like, what people will associate. And Ash, like, I'll talk about it because, because we understand the Upper East Side and the West Village in a way that we uniquely connect on but not just those neighborhoods but specifically those neighborhoods and Washington Connecticut but I don't think people are calling him Graydon's son at this point I don't I really don't know but I don't think so I don't imagine it's something he's sensitive to but there's this era of New York City that is I don't think it's even dying I think it's gone long gone and it's just this like high society you know it's 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 like the, we've um for decades you know had like the scenes shift I've talked about this before I think I talked about this in episode one where for our whole you know for a hundred years it was like the culture and the scene shifted but it was within the same framework it was like there's a venue there's there's famous people, there's beautiful women, there's rich guys, there's promotery types. There's like all the, it's all the same makeup. Every scene is the same. It's just the music changes, the venues change, the, the clothes change, but like, it's all the same things. And then in the last decade, 
it's no longer the same. So I think that the New York that like Ash and I were, were the young, we're the last to know that, to know about like high society in New York City. And not to say I loved it. It's just like I have nostalgia for it. It's just stuff that I learned when I was a kid. And I had to go through that phase of realize of like dating the socialite women because I, I would just look at them as like they were, you know, next level. They were otherworldly. So having access to that world was something that I think I inherited a desire to um, to transcend. Once I got there, I felt horrible, but you don't know until you know. I remember the second time, so the first time Bianca and I ever met, Bianca met me, I was in town for for two days, and I only had this tiny window to see, to see, I had one free, like one moment free for drinks the night before I left, and I was having dinner with a bunch of friends at Benihana, which is like my favorite tradition, uptown, and then I went to Polo Bar afterwards to meet, sorry, with one of my friends. And that's where Bianca met me. But so I had this person who's like never been uptown. She met me all the way in Midtown. or You know, I call it Midtown, but it's like uptown. And our first and then our first like date was was up there. And then the second and then I went back to uh, I think I was gone for like two weeks after that. And then I came back and um, I wanted to go to Sushi of Gary. That was like straight from the airport. So she met me. I again, I was in town for like two days. And she met me at Sushi of Gary on 78th and 1st. And the and, and then she, we slept at my friend's place right around there. And then the next day we wake up. And this was the first time in her life. I walked her around the Upper East Side. And showed her, like, just told her stories. Like, told her where the tea house was. Told her where the rich people lived. Told her, like, where I went to school. Showed her my school. All my favorite milkshakes. Like, all my favorite. Just everything. And uh, we walked for, like, hours. We went to museums and stuff. We went to Barney's. <laughs> um, and there's very few people who know that world, like, in a cool way. Most of them are rich out of touch assholes who don't know anything else who don't understand the context um i was watching this this lynch video to go you know just framework like you know lynch shows us the dark so that we can understand the light lynch is not a sicko lynch is not a dark guy but we need to see a spectrum we need to be elastic we need to expand our 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 you know expand our horizons expands our range of vision yeah like every day i look at the horizon all day like I'm staring at a horizon line right now and it's so it's endless and I think that's like good for my vision physically same thing with culture so Ash knows the Upper East Side rich kids but also like the art world the real people who make the stuff that the rich people want to buy and I don't have a lot of people who know both I know people who come from the art world and have gotten access to the rich people and I know just straight up rich people I don't know a lot of people who understand the rich people and understand the art world uptown downtown and ash is beautiful in that way and we both inherited that him through his his father you know vanity fair and now airmail and my dad's a bensonhurst i'm four generations bensonhurst in bay ridge 
on my dad's side my mom's side is queens bronx atlantic city long island like riverdale they were all over the place and they were not rich like my my dad was like the first i'm i'm first generation manhattan so everyone was really excited by my being a manhattan kid that was an achievement like my grandparents in Bensonhurst, I grew up spending weekends in Bensonhurst or, you know, Queens. Like at my, I was either with my grandparents in Day Hill Road or I was with my other grandparents in there in, in Queens at the warehouse, the video distribution warehouse. That's another story about horror movies and stuff. But so I had this weird assimilation and Ash is just one of the, Ash is one of the few people that I respect that understands that dichotomy. So I want to read a little bit from his book. Oh, you know what? I want to read from his text first. So Ash and I were texting, I think yesterday, maybe the day before. Let's see what he said. We were talking about casting of... Benjamin Braddock, Dustin Hoffman. It's funny, since using Simon and Garfunkel in The Graduate is arguably the best use of pop music in a movie ever, and Carly Simon's music for Heartburn may be the very worst. That was, uh, he and I, I was texting him about the Val Kilmer book, which I'm reading now. So I read his Mike Nichols book, and I'm reading the Val Kilmer book right now, and I've been texting him all the anecdotes that Kilmer has about Mike Nichols through via Cher and Carly Simon specifically. Um, so we were talking about that a little bit. And uh, Ash said, regarding casting Ben Braddock, to me what's revolutionary about it is not that Hoffman is Jewish, so is Paul Newman. And while I think, quote, representation is a good thing, it feels like these days it's the only way people are able to judge a movie. The thing about The Graduate is that Nichols cast a very Jewish actor, but did not make the character Jewish. When Nichols tells Hoffman, and this is, you know, part of his direction, maybe he's Jewish inside, he's really saying, we all have an inner Jew. And I love that. It's that there's an energy to the casting. It's not, it's not about the representation. It's about what we see as romance, what we see as existential crisis. It didn't have to be Kirk Douglas. Like, I think of the arrangement as a great analog to The Graduate, Elia Kazan's film, but he cast Kirk Douglas. The arrangement is such a Jewy script. Oh my God. The obsession with the Gentile, with the Goyim. Like, it's so Jewy, obviously, but it's Kirk Douglas. And then Mike Nichols made it. Dustin Hoffman and now guys like me can be seen as attractive so Ash's book is a uh, is an oral history so it's it's quotes from different interviews that he conducted regarding Mike Nichols so I'll read um, I'm going to read a, a, a passage Buck Henry screenwriter 
When we started casting The Graduate, we were talking about actors who looked nothing like the final result. They were all tall and blonde, but it wasn't as interesting. Robert Redford, actor. You know that. Mike Nichols wanted me to be in The Graduate because Barefoot in the Park had been so successful, and he wanted to continue the relationship. I said, yeah, but Mike, I'm not right for that guy. I see this character as it's written, a guy on an escalator who can't get off. I said, if it was me, I could get off the escalator. I'd just jump over it. I think that's what I project, and I don't think the character should project that. We went back and forth. He just wouldn't accept what I was saying. Finally, I said, I'll show you. I'll do a screen test. So I did a test with Candy Bergen. I did everything I could do to seem like a schlub. But when it was over, he said, I get it. You're right. And that was the end of that. Douglas McGrath, screenwriter. Mike's version was that even though on the surface, Bob seemed right for it. Because in the novel, The Graduate, Benjamin is described as looking exactly like Bob Redford. It's also about a guy who's not so lucky with girls. And so when Bob was pestering him for the part, Mike said, let me ask you a question. How do you react when a girl turns you down? And Bob said, what do you mean? (laughs) Great. Larry Terman, producer. We saw a million kids. Redford tested with Candy Bergen. We tested Tony Bill. Charles Grodin came in for a reading, and it was a terrific reading. I've heard or read a couple places that Charles Grodin says the biggest mistake he made was turning down the graduate. Well, he was never offered the graduate. At one point, Mike turned to me and said, Termin, you SOB, you got me into a movie that can't be cast. I'll remind you, we talked about in Ash's episode how Mike Nichols would say he is not a great director of actors, he just is great at casting actors. Catherine Ross, actress. I did two tests. I tested with Dustin Hoffman, and I tested the next day with Charles Grodin. I remember meeting Dustin in the office a couple days before. He was from New York, all dressed in black, and you know, we're all tan out here. Those were the days when all the leading men just looked like Robert Redford. Dustin looked like he had crawled out from under a rock. He was in some off-Broadway production, not at all interested in being in a movie, or at least that's what he said. He was very outspoken about that. I gave him a ride home. He had no car, didn't want to have a car. He was staying at his parents' house. Sounds like me. Wow, I love that. In L.A. with no car, needing some beautiful woman to drive you home. That's been my strategy my whole life. Dustin Hoffman, actor. Eh? Is that what really is, is, is what really brought me to the attention of Broadway? <laughs> on opening night, the usual Times critic was on holiday or something, so they sent the book critic Christopher Lemon Haupt, and he gave it a fucking rave. Before that, people had been laughing in the previews. After that, they came in laughing at the wallpaper. They're so conditioned. That weekend or two weekends later, because nobody tells you anything, I pick up the Sunday Times and my face is all over the front of the arts and leisure section. It's by Walter Kerr, and he compares me to Buster Keaton. I had never seen a Buster Keaton movie, but I went to see one afterwards, and I understood what he was talking about. The body language. I think Nichols must have read that and told somebody to go see the show. I don't think he ever saw it. Suddenly, I'm getting some off-Broadway plays. If I could work off-Broadway for the rest of my life, I'd be delighted. And then my agent, Jane Oliver, calls me and says, they want to audition you for this movie called The Graduate, with Mike Nichols directing. Larry Terman. Dustin had a 30-second scene in The Tiger Makes Out. Somehow, we arranged to go see that 30-second scene, and off that, we decided to test him, too. Buck Henry. I'd seen him on stage. He was stunning. 
I also had known him in passing because he'd been around the village and the theaters there were all around. Dustin Hoffman. I cannot honestly remember if I read the book first or the script, but I know I read both. I said, what the fuck is going on? I'm not right for this. A 5 foot 11 inch wasp with blonde hair and blue eyes? I'm a character actor, but there's a limit. It's funny what you remember. On my little coffee table was Time Magazine. It said, Man of the Year, 25 and under. And there was a drawing of a guy that looked like Benjamin. There he was, Mr. Gentile. I said, Mr. Nichols, take a look at that cover, because that's who you want. Somebody like Robert Redford. I didn't even know Redford had tried out. I later found out that Mike wanted someone who would have trouble getting a date, and Redford wouldn't. Mike called again. I think he was kind of intrigued because this unknown actor is saying, I'm not right, sorry. He said, you don't want to do it because you're Jewish. I said, yes. And he said, well, maybe Benjamin's Jewish inside. I said, okay, I'll audition. Oh, funny. It's, it, I, I wasn't sure if it was the exact line in the book, but yeah. Larry Terman. The Graduate was a book written by a wasp about Pasadena at a point in time where it was really a wasp community. We filmed it in Beverly Hills, putatively a Jewish enclave. The picture was produced by an atheist that was Jewish. Mike Nichols is Jewish. Buck Henry is Jewish. The leading character, Dustin Hoffman, is Jewish. The guy who put up the money, Joe Levine, is Jewish. You should really read the beginning of the book, at least. Um, the opening chapter talks about Mike Nichols' background. Crazy background. Like, not what you think it is. His name is not Mike Nichols. <laughs> Buck Henry. We decided to switch it and make Nouveau Riche Beverly Hills... Nouveau Riche Beverly Hills Jews out of them. It's my theory of California genetics. Jews from New York came, and within one generation, the Malibu sand had gotten into their genes and turned their children into tall Nordic powerhouses. <laughs> Love it. Dustin Hoffman. My agent told me to call Nichols, and I thought, oh, fuck, he's going to tell me you almost got it but weren't right. I remember walking to my girlfriend's apartment, trudging up the middle of Columbus because there was a lot of snow. I walked from 11th Street all the way to the 70s. She was about to make me a nice Sunday breakfast, and I said, I've got to make this phone call. Mike answers, hello? Mr. Nichols, I I'm sorry, w what time is it? I woke him up. They said to call at 10. That made it 7 in the morning, his time. There was a long pause. Well, you got it. Those were the words. No, I've got great news for you. He said, hello, you don't sound very excited. I said, no, I am, thinking they must have made a mistake. This is a bad joke. I hang up the phone and look across to where my girlfriend is cooking the eggs. She looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, I got it. She said, I knew you would. And I wasn't happy. Wait, what just happened? Sorry. Oh, sorry. My thing froze. Um, she said, I knew you would, and it wasn't happy. She knew it meant we were going to be separated because she was a dancer in the New York City Ballet. I've heard, and I underline that because it doesn't mean it's true. Terman might have said it. They're sitting there looking at the test. It's over, and one looks at the other, and there's silence. And finally, one of them says, because we were the last they had tested. Well, I don't know. What do you think? We go with them or we don't do it. And Mike says, okay, we go with them. 
I'm convinced, if that's a true quote, that if we had auditioned in the first two weeks, it would have never happened for me. When we saw Dustin and Catherine, it's not like either one of us said, that's our couple. We said, they'll be okay. Yeah, let's use them. No magic bell went off saying, Eureka, we struck gold, as we proved to do. William Daniels, actor. Mike's a pretty independent guy. He wanted Dustin, who nobody knew. I heard he was a very good actor off-Broadway, but this was his first film, and Mike insisted on him to Paramount. So Mike was in a pretty strong position to do that and turn down an an already established movie star, and I think he was right. Buck Henry. One of the first screenings of the film was a private screening, the Friends screening, as we used to call them. A lot of people said, loved the film, very good, very funny, very interesting. Something awfully weird about that kid. Man, I hope they all say that about me. Dustin Hoffman. Terman said the New York Times people who had seen the film in previews were telling him, do you know what a great film you would have if you hadn't miscast the lead? I thought my suspicions were correct. Robert Nichols, brother of Mike Nichols. I saw a very early screening of The Graduate before it was released, and Joe Levine was there and asked me what I thought of it. Because I was young. So I was in the audience and they were reaching. I thought it was great, but I thought Hoffman was all wrong for the part. Turns out I was all wrong. Buck Henry. I don't think any of us thought it was going to be a significant social event. Not Nichols. Certainly not me. What it seemed to be was a really good story about people sort of like us. But it's like rock and roll. A whole generation changed its idea about what you guys should look like. Bogart, they called him ugly until one day he wasn't. And God bless them for it. (laughs) I love that part in the book. It's so true, I mean, the assimilation is... So I grew up with Dustin's kids. Max and I were the same age, and we looked alike. I had blonde hair. I was actually cast when I was a kid. It's funny. So I was cast as as Robert Redford's son in a film, Lorenzo's Oil. It was going to be Susan Sarandon and Robert Redford, and I was the son. And then uh, Redford dropped out. It became Nick Nolte. And I didn't look like Nick Nolte. They thought I looked like Robert Redford. Fuck, how crazy is that? Like, that we just read this. So, uh, so Max and I would get confused because everyone thought, Max and I were twins. We had the same hair. We both had blonde hair, like slightly curly. My hair wasn't as curly back then. It was... And I got cast as Redford's kid, like the most Gentile motherfucker. And I don't say motherfucker in a derogatory way. I just mean like so fucking Gentile. When I was a kid, I looked Aryan, actually. I, I didn't look Jewish because my mom is blonde and my grandma's blonde. Like half my family's blonde. Somehow. I still have, you know, right now my beard is all blonde. Because I've been in the sun. And my hair is like light brown at this point. My brother has 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 even lighter hair than me. And his hair is really soft and like not curly. Like my mom's. But yeah, it's uh, it's always been something I've, I've balanced and struggled with. Like my, when I was a kid, I... I looked at Charlie Bookman's hair and Eric Lindman's hair. They had the flop. They had just like the bowl, not not quite bowl cut. We were a little too old for the bowl cut that was already out, but it was this part down the middle where it would just like, it was like a skater thing and it would just like fall to the sides and that was the coolest hair, like 90s stuff. And uh, I couldn't do that. 
my hair didn't work that way. And then and then the flip in the front a few years later where you'd get it cut short and except in the front and it would go up. That was the coolest. And I couldn't do any of that. I tried to do it with my hair. I looked like a fucking idiot. If you look at pictures of me when I was younger, I looked like a fucking moron. I looked like a kid having an identity crisis. You got my dad with this Jufro, which he's always had. And you got me with like like a white person haircut. My brother has white person hair, so he can do it, but I can't, and I never, I never could. But I always looked at their hair, and just like, I fantasized about having hair like that. White people, pale people. <laughs> I watched, so AFI Docs is going on right now, and I watched the Roy Cohn film, also speaking about you know Jews with identity crises. And Roy Cohn, there's a play that where Nathan Lane played Roy Cohn uh, by Tony Kushner, the same, the the writer of Angels in America, which, um, so the Roy Cohn doc is on HBO right now. Tony Kushner's in it and talks about Roy Cohn a lot. And Angels in America was HBO as well. And that was directed by Mike Nichols, written by Tony Kushner. So, uh... I'm going to read a passage on that to round out this episode because it's super timely with everything um, going on in the world right now, both the comparison to the AIDS crisis, which is huge. We have so many notes that we are not taking from the AIDS crisis and human rights. You know, it's a it's a major time for human rights and. Lots of notes to take that we have not been taking. So, okay. It's funny. Uh, okay, so this passage starts off with Richard Plepler, who, an incredible executive, one of the best of all time, built so many, you know, Sopranos and on up, all of them until recently. Just left HBO last year when everything was changing into the streaming service, which is... I fucking think HBO is trash at this point. The new Westworld series was like such a joke. Uh, I mean, everything they're putting out is so bad. It, it's it's so bad. <laughs> they're just they're they're trying to compete with Netflix, which is which is so sad because this is just you know everything is like corporate directive now. It's so oh, it sucks. But Apple. Plus, as soon as it aired, as soon as it launched, I was like, oh, my God, they're like four for four. Like every show is good. It's for different people, but like every show is quality. And it has continued to be. And I was like, this is the new HBO. Like they're not going to put out 100 shows. They're just going to put out one at a time and they're all going to be good. And this is what HBO used to do. And Richard Plepler is responsible for that more than anyone, in, in my opinion. And he now works at Apple Plus, which is incredible news. I can't wait for what they do. So, okay, I'm going to start this passage. Adapting Angels in America. Richard Plepler. Mike had just done this Fakakta thing about somebody going into space, and he was depressed. Pete Peterson told me he had lunch with Mike and said to him, you are not doing what you are meant to be doing. You are moving farther away from who you are, and that's why you're not happy with your art. You need to be at HBO. 
Mike would later say this was a pivotal conversation. Colin Callender, producer. I was president of HBO Films, and we bought the film rights to a play by Margaret Edson called Wit. I approached Emma Thompson about playing the central role. I flew to London and met Emma at her house in Belsize Park. I don't know where that is. And right out of the gate, she said, <laughs> you know the director I would like to do this with is Mike Nichols. Emma Thompson. Mike had just come off a film that hadn't done well. Even though Mike had never done telly in that test, I thought, well, maybe he's feeling a bit battered and he might be interested in this material. Because as soon as I read Margaret Edson's brilliant play, I thought, God, there's only one person who could do this. He said yes immediately. Colin Callender. It was the first time he had directed anything for television, and it was a great experience. He and I were talking about what he could do next. I had been tracking Angels in America, which had been developed at New Line Cinema. I worked at New Line Cinema as a kid for Toby Emmerich as two movies with Robert Altman, but they never got off the ground. So I said to Mike while we were in one of the breaks shooting Wit, what about Angels in America? Jeffrey Wright, actor. At one point, there were discussions about Robert Altman possibly doing it. I was attuned to these rumors. I'd made a personal pledge that if I were not included in the film adaptation, I would burn down any sets that had been built. So my antennae were up. Tony Kushner. Carrie Brokaw, a film producer who had been working with me I think about 10 years to try to figure out a way to bring angels to the screen, called me and said, Mike Nichols is interested in talking to you about angels in America. So we met at Trattoria dell'Arte across from Carnegie Hall. I was very nervous about meeting him because he was Mike Nichols. And I was also wary about anybody trying to make a movie of angels. I had sort of given up on the idea. I'd worked for two or three years with Robert Altman. And then Bob and I sort of decided at the same time that this is probably not going to happen. So Mike and I sat down, and he said, it's lovely to meet you, and I really love your play, or something like that. And I don't remember exactly how he got into it, but he immediately said, I want to keep all of the doubling of characters, which was a shock to me because I thought, of course, that he that, that would have to go. And I said, I'm surprised, but that's very intriguing. Why? And he said, because I want to see Meryl play all of these different parts. So he had done two things instantly that were sure to hook me. One was letting me know that if I said yes to working with him, I would maybe get a chance to work with Meryl Streep, which was one of my dreams. And also, I thought, this is a guy who's not only a great filmmaker, he's a great theater director, and he gets the essentially theatrical nature of the script. He's going to find ways, as he had done with Wit and way back with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, to make a film out of it, but still keep getting a little bit out of the theater, out of the world of theater. Immediately, I thought, this is the guy. It felt like I had been waiting for that. Al Pacino. I saw the two great performances, one with F. Murray Abraham and another with Ron Liebman on Broadway, and I was extremely impressed. The whole evening was spectacular, but I never had any interest in playing the role whatsoever until Robert Altman came to me with the film version. Somehow, it fell apart. Then a few years later, Mike Nichols was involved, and he wanted me. I knew Mike socially, and I loved him as one of the great directors. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to work with him. Patrick Wilson. It was such a different time. The first reaction from people was, Al Pacino and Meryl Streep are doing TV? Ben Schenkman, actor. When HBO made the announcement, I remember thinking, of course, that is, perf that is the perfect thing. Nichols doing it with these people on HBO. It can be as long as it needs to be, and HBO has already identified the audience that is ready for this. Meryl Streep. 
He put together a group, some of his favorite people, some people he'd never worked with, some unknown people. He made this combination of actors, uh, he made this combination of characters adhere in a beautiful way, beautiful seamless way. I'm not sure what that particular alchemy is. I don't quite understand how he achieved it. Juliet Taylor. You start thinking of all the well-known guys, but they really couldn't do the words. Some of the monologues go on for two pages, and people who could have been trained in, who hadn't been trained in the theater can't do it. So it ended up being cast with real New York City actors. Mike would almost always go for a better known person than an un, over an unknown. That would be the inclination, but not at the expense of being good. There was one pretty well-known actor who said he'd do it only if he <laughs> didn't have to kiss a guy. And we said, sorry, bye-bye. <laughs> it's funny. I was telling my friend who's a filmmaker uh, that I want to act in his film that he, he's making this film soon. And uh, I was like, I want, I want a role in it. And, and he was talking about one and I was like, cool, I'm down, but you have to make the character gay. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I shaped my character already and he's rewriting it to make the character super gay. Meryl Streep. Mike seemed not to be daunted. Maybe he was, but I never knew that. You have a, a very important piece and you feel the responsibility to everybody who had AIDS, but it's funny. And funny is where stuff goes into your heart. It's how the toughest stuff is able to be rendered. So even when the material was really hard, he was always buoyant. It just felt like, well, of course this is possible. It's not that big a deal. But it was. It was an incredibly ambitious piece. Al Pacino. Everything Mike Setter did, the way he moved, the atmosphere he created on a set, anything he did, it was all direction. When he talked about what he had for breakfast in the morning, it was direction. What's in the news? The Osbournes. Mike Nichols. I cannot say enough. Loved him. Still do. Ben Shankman. They arranged a screening of it in the Brill Building for whoever of the cast was available. I think Justin was in L.A., but Patrick and Mary Louise and Jeffrey and I went in and watched... Muchas gracias. Adios. Sorry. I think Justin was in L.A., but Patrick and Mary Louise and Jeffrey and I went and watched part one and then had a little catered lunch and then went back and watched part two. I remember first seeing the title sequence and hearing the music and thinking, oh my God, it's almost too beautiful. It was fully an hour before the adrenaline in my body would allow my legs to stop shaking. Mary Louise Parker. I don't watch my own work, so it was a little hard for me, but I was so wowed by it. And I think Mike was really proud of it, though it's not like he took credit for it. He felt like it was a collaborative thing, but of course it was his. It wouldn't have been all, it wouldn't have been that Angels with any other director. He understood the humanity of it and the poetry of it equally. Jeffrey Wright. I thought to myself, wow, he did it. And he did it beautifully. There were some others who might have been able to pull that off, but not many. And in this lifetime, it was him. Richard Plepler. At the premiere, Diane came up to me and said, thank you for giving my husband more life. That's Diane Sorter, Mike Nichols' wife. Which, of course, was a reference to one of the key lines in the play. As Kushner explains in the notes to Perestroika, more life is Harold Bloom's translation of the Hebrew word for blessing. Do you think Drake was thinking about that on his mixtape, More Life? I don't know. He is Jewish. <laughs> Kinda. Ben Schenkman. 
In 2010, I was at a screening of Philip Seymour Hoffman's movie, Jack Goes Boating, and I saw Nichols outside. I asked him if he'd seen the revival of Angels at the Signature Theater, and he said, yes, they're brilliant, but it's ours now. I got a full body chill. Richard Plepler. We're living in a very, very trying moment. It's too mean. There's too much invective vitriol, too much hatred. The best antidote to that are the artists. They're our last best hope, and I think that Mike understood that. I think he basically understood that in the end, the only thing that works is love, and art is our last best hope. I think Mike felt the best way for me to take on Roy Cohn is not in a public fight or in an election. It's through art. Okay, it's all coming. Uh, Roy Cohn died of AIDS while remaining in the closet. Just FYI for context. And he was very outspoken uh and he was like anti-gay legislature it was very is well i watched the roy Cohn film tony kushner i think he was a liberal with a powerful social conscience he paid great attention to what was going on injustice upset him oppression was an anathema to him i think to the extent that he believed art can contribute to political struggle he wanted his art to be on the side of history the side of the good and the just and the righteous and not contribute to the problem but mike had a feeling that i share to a large extent that the power of art is an indirect power that if you're making art your job is to make the art as good as you can on its own terms and not pretend to be making art while you're really making a polemic or propaganda at one point, I wrote a scene with all these fantastical p places that Pryor, should, that, that Pryor should go through on his way to heaven. A hospital waiting room full of people with KS lesions in various stages and then people from Africa. Mike read it and said, I'm really moved by this, but it's going to look like a public service announcement. It would be, a worthy, it would be worthy as a PSA, but it's not drama. And we never spoke of it again. Colin Callender. The story of Angels in America was Mike's own life story. In the opening scene, the rabbi talks about the grandmother coming from the shtetl and says there are no more journeys like this anymore. But that was Mike Nichols' journey. I've often said that directors' greatest work tends to be about themselves, and in many ways, so many of the themes both in Wit and Angels in America were meditations on who Mike Nichols was as an individual and where he was in his life. Wit is the story of a woman who hides behind her fierce intellect and her learning and her wit and is reflecting on the price she's paid for certain choices she's made. I remember him talking about winning an Oscar and going back to the polo lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel and sitting there alone wondering, what the fuck does this mean, really? And Angels delves into so many themes from his own heritage to his relationship with so many people who died of AIDS. One of the last lines of the play is, we are not going away. When that was first performed, that was sort of a rallying cry. When the television version of it came out, the line was less a rallying cry and more a statement of fact. We are not going away. quite beautiful I think with that I'm gonna go do some writing of my own